I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1. This morning we take a step away from our systematic study through the book of 1 Peter. We finished chapter 2 of 1 Peter last week, and I didn't want to start chapter 3 and then be gone, so we'll take the opportunity we have today to revisit the book of Romans. We touched in Romans last week. We've read from Romans 3 today. Now we'll open up to Romans 1. We'll consider the very opening of this book, Romans 1. We'll consider the first seven verses. So as we read this text, we will see Jesus Christ and his gospel. Please follow along in your Bible as I read Romans 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray this morning as we turn our attention to these verses that you would guide us, that you would teach us, that you would open our hearts and minds to, to see to hear Christ Jesus, our Savior. God, we pray that you would hide the preacher behind the cross, that your gospel would be heard clearly. We pray this in your strong and mighty name and for your kingdom's sake. Amen. This week I had a conversation with some folks in Northeast Texas and they seemed almost surprised to say, our pastor said, my ears perked up, our pastor said he believes the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's, that's it. Yeah, I, I hope today that none of us here are surprised to hear that, but I want us to be reminded that the whole Bible is about Jesus. The whole Bible is the revelation of Jesus Christ and the gospel of God. Every part of scripture, old and new, is about Jesus. Law and prophets, poetry and history, it's about Jesus. Gospel and epistles, it's about Jesus. It's all telling the plan of God, the decree of God to save sinners by a redeemer. It's true that there are sections of scripture where Christ Jesus and the gospel may not be as easily recognized 
But every part of Scripture plays a role in giving us the full revelation which God has for us. But if there's one book that you would say, what's that book of the Bible that's about the gospel? Well, all of them. But if there's one that we might most often refer to when we speak about the doctrines of the gospel, the teaching of the gospel, perhaps Romans would be above all. The book of Romans is certainly about the gospel. We could, we could put a title over the section that we read today, the gospel. We could put a title over the whole book of Romans, the gospel. We could put a title over the whole Bible, the gospel. <clears throat> Someone has suggested that the book of Romans is given so that we might know the gospel, so that we might believe the gospel, and so that we might spread the gospel. I think that's probably a pretty good outline overall of the book of Romans. We see today in our study as Paul sets out to write this letter to the Romans that he wastes no time in getting to the gospel. We're only going to look at the introductory remarks. Uh, introductory remarks. We're only going to look at the salutation of the letter and we're going to see that Jesus Christ and the gospel are here. And here preeminently. We notice that the letter opens with the name of the writer, Paul. Now, that's not how I was taught to write letters in school. But I, it has come to my attention that that's how we do emails. You get emails, you see the sender immediately. Uh, that's how they wrote their letters. The, the writer's name would be at the beginning. It's common. But someone has pointed out that the name that appears at the beginning of this book and the names that appear at the beginning of other New Testament epistles, these names are the names of men who wholeheartedly believed the gospel, who wholeheartedly believed the truth of Scripture. Paul would later give his life for the gospel, just like the rest of the apostles and his name stands here because he truly believes the things contained in this book and he believes them to be worth dying. <coughs> we begin with Paul's name. And another thing that we learn by Paul's name appearing at the beginning of the book is this, our first point, the gospel is spread by people. The gospel is spread by people. Now, <clears throat> God was certainly not bound to use people for his gospel work. He could have done whatever he wanted to do in that, but he ordained the means as well as the end. And God has ordained that the gospel would be preached by redeemed men. The gospel is preached by sinners. Paul wrote this book and Paul was a sinner. We think about it. The gospel is taught in our homes by godly parents, but you're sinners. It's taught to our children by sinners. The gospel is lived. The, the results of the gospel lived out before our children and they'll know 
that we're sinners. That we're just people. The gospel is spread by people. Paul was a people. Paul here calls himself a bond servant of Christ Jesus. A bond servant. Peter, John, James, and Jude all use this same servant language to refer to themselves. And as we think about these men, as we think about the apostles, they were the men who were closest to Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. They were the men who, while you and I would not recognize Jesus, we would recognize if we saw Jesus as a man, but we would not recognize him and say, oh, that's Jesus. He looked like a man. They would recognize him and say, that's Jesus. They knew him. They knew him that well. There was a familiarity that you and I do not have. And these who had the closest relationship to him, humanly speaking, the closest relationship, we don't hear them refer to Jesus with irreverence. We don't hear them refer to Jesus with the same kind of irreverent language that some professing Christians do today. There is no Jesus is my homeboy in Paul. There's no attitude of, of any sort of disrespect. What does he say about himself concerning Christ? I am a bond slave. I am a bond slave. He's a minister. And then he says, I am an apostle. He was called as an apostle. Called as an apostle. The first thing we, we can recognize here is that Paul did not call himself to be an apostle. He was called as an apostle. The very calling of an apostle has unique requirements which included being an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ and Paul was called by Christ to be an apostle this apostle office this apostleship this is this is something that we know is a unique office and the number of this office is not growing there are no new apostles being added and anyone living and breathing today who tells you that they are an apostle, don't believe them. They are deceived and deceiving others. But church, we do have apostles waiting for the shop to set in. What? There are apostles today? Yes, there are. Now, they don't live here in Texas. They live in heaven. But their apostle apostolic work is contained in the scriptures and we have it. We have apostles. And when we have questions, when we have issues, when we need teaching, we still go to the apostles. We still go to the Holy Scriptures. The apostles of the New Testament are the only apostles and they're still the apostles for the church. Paul was a bondservant of Christ Jesus called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel. Set apart for the gospel of God. Again, set apart reminds us that Paul did not take this mantle to himself. 
He was called by Jesus Christ to be an apostle. And then his calling as a minister of the word was affirmed by the church. The church set him apart for the gospel. And we find here not only that the church set him apart, but we find the purpose of apostleship for the gospel of God set apart for the gospel of God. And there are distinctions between apostles and preachers, ministers, pastors, but this is the same purpose for every minister of the word of God, every pastor, elder, every overseer. We are called for the gospel of God. Paul, a bond servant, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel. The gospel is spread by people. We also see here in this text that the gospel is no new doctrine. This is not a novel thing. We should understand, Christians, any new teaching concerning God is not true. And any true teaching concerning God is not new. Now that flies in the face of the world around us. That flies in the face, not only of the world out there, but many times it flies in the face of the thinking within the church. The first time I heard the phrase, if it's not new, it's through, was in church. We want new stuff, new things. But any new teaching concerning God is not true. And any true teaching concerning God is not new. Church, we need an allergy to new doctrine. We need, we need a resistance to new things. Now, now we have to beware. Sometimes there are doctrines that we hear and we say, that's new. And what we mean is, I've never understood that. I've never heard that. It's new to me. But it must be found in the scripture. And if it's not found in the scripture, if it's not found in this old book, then it's not a good doctrine. The saints in Rome reading Paul's letters, they knew that there must be an aversion to a novel message. So Paul here validates the gospel by pointing out that it is not new. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that he would come, that he would become a man taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul that he would live a perfect life fulfilling all of the law on behalf of all who would believe in him that he would die on the cruel cross of Calvary bearing the sin of all who would believe this gospel is not new and I'll also point out here that this gospel is not plan B if all goes well with Adam in the garden we won't need a savior. We won't need a God. That is not God's plan A. And then Adam fell and then God had to pivot. When Adam sinned, God did not have to adjust his will, modify his plan at all. The gospel was the plan from before the foundations of the world. And the text tells us here it was promised beforehand in scriptures. It's not new. It was promised beforehand. The gospel goes all the way back to 
Genesis, all the way back to the very beginning, all the way. Paul, in writing this letter to the Romans, was not asking anyone to believe a wild and unsubstantiated story. He's calling them to seriously consider the promises of Holy Scripture and come to see that Jesus is the Messiah, the Redeemer, the substitutionary sacrificial lamb that was prophesied of in the Old Testament. Paul is calling them to see the truth of this old gospel now brought to fruition, now brought to its fullness. Jesus is the antitype and the substance to the types and shadows in the scripture. The gospel is no new doctrine. It was promised through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. So the gospel is spread by people and the gospel is no new doctrine. Then we see the gospel testifies of Jesus Christ. Verse 3 says, concerning his son. Concerning his son. The gospel is concerning Jesus Christ the Son of God. Take all that is the gospel and remove Jesus Christ and you're left with nothing. Certainly no gospel. Or to say it another way, consider Jesus Christ, all that he is and all that he has done and you have in that the fullness of the gospel. Any gospel in which Jesus is not the beginning and the end and the center, that's no gospel at all. The gospel is concerning Jesus Christ, the Son of God. How shameful it is when we begin to think that the gospel is about me. What's the main thing of the gospel? Well, I was redeemed. What's the main thing in the gospel? Well, my sins were forgiven. The gospel is all about Jesus. The main thing is that he is a redeemer. The main thing is that he died to forgive sin. He is the center of the gospel. The verse says concerning his son. Concerning his son. Speaking of the sonship of Jesus, the deity of Jesus Christ, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. In this verse, we have the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. Two important descriptions of Jesus. He is son, that is, he is the son of God. Someone pointed out, I thought it was, it was pretty interesting. The son of my bull, my cow, is a cow. Son of my bull is a bull. The son of my dog is a dog. The son of a man is a man. And the son of God is God. And here we see that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is God. And He is, according to the flesh, a descendant of David. 
That is, he is the son of man and he is a man. There are so many false doctrines around this truth on every side. Some say that Jesus is a man. Jesus was born a man and only a man and then had an added blessing from God given to him. Some would say at his baptism or or at another part of his life. But ultimately, this is a denial of the deity of Jesus Christ. Some say that Jesus was God who only had the appearance of a man. He was God, but he only had the appearance of a man. He was not actually a man. And this, of course, denies the humanity of Christ. Some have taught, and and it's very familiar to us, some have taught the Arian heresy that Jesus was fully man and sort of God. That Jesus was fully man and an emanation from God or a copy of God. But we all know when you make a copy, that copy is lesser than the original. And they teach that Jesus was man, but he was just a copy of God, not fully God. And this is, this is referred to as the Arian heresy because it is a heresy. And as we read together the Athanasian Creed this morning, what a what a blessing to proclaim the truth of the deity and the humanity of Christ, our Savior. Scripture is very clear. Jesus is the son of God. He is God and Jesus is the son of man. He is man. As son of God, Jesus is God. Now, he is not the son of God in the same way that the redeemed elect are sons of God. Maybe you're thinking, well, I'm a son of God. Jesus is the son of God. We're the same. No, he is not the son of God in the same way. We are sons by adoption. Jesus is son because he is of the same essence as the father. And he is eternally begotten of the Father. Eternally begotten. We we hear that word. We don't use that word really, but we understand what it means, especially when we go to the Old Testament and we see that this man begot this man, that man begot another man, and we read of those begots. And when we think of the begottenness of Jesus Christ, it might cause us some confusion if we think of human begottenness and divine begottenness in the same way. Here's what I mean, and I'll try to be clear. When a man, when a human man begets a son, there was a time that that son was not. Now, my son is here, but there was a time when there was no Michael Allen Gill, when he did not exist. When a man begets a son, there was a time that that son was not. When a man begets a son, something of the father is lost, is given and lost in begetting the son. And when a man begets a son, the son is similar, but not the same essence as his human father. That's human begottenness. 
But divine begottenness, when we say Jesus is begotten of the Father, there was never a time when Jesus did not exist. There was never a time when Jesus was not. He is eternal. When we say Jesus is begotten of the Father, the Father lost nothing, nor has anything been changed in the Father by begetting. The Father is not changed. And when we say Jesus is begotten of the Father, we're not only saying that Jesus is similar to the Father, but that He is of the very same essence as the Father. This is so important that we understand that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Our confession says it this way. If you'd like to follow along in your hymnal, it's on page 674. And it's, it's a little, it's worth turning there if you want to want to get there. 674 in the hymnal. If you have your little black copy, it's page 18. It's chapter 8 and paragraph 2. Speaking of Christ the mediator, we have this section that speaks of Jesus being fully God and fully man. Second London Confession, chapter 8, paragraph 2. The Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with Him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things He has made, did, when the fullness of time was complete, take upon Him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it, yet without sin. Jesus is eternally God, and in the fullness of time, he became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. We continue being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the most high overshadowing her. And so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, the seed of Abraham and David, according to the scripture. So that the two whole, perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. Two whole natures, not half man, half God. Two whole, perfect, distinct natures were inseparably joined. Now we just said that in eternity past, Jesus was not man, he was eternally God, but in the fullness of time, he became man and he continues to be God and man. Forever. And then we have these added words that are very important without conversion, composition, or confusion. It does us good, uh, as we did not so long ago on Wednesday evenings, to think through this union of God and man. Continuing. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Scripture speaks of Jesus as God. And we know that he is. Jesus said, 
I and the Father are one. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus accepted worship. We saw that earlier in our reading as Jesus accepted the worship of Thomas. Jesus accepted worship. He had the power to lay down his life and the power to take it up again. All these are God things. Jesus is truly God. The scripture also speaks of Jesus as a son of man. Jesus is a man just like we are, except without sin. If you saw Jesus on the streets of Jerusalem, you would recognize him as a man because he is a man. And as a man, he got tired. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He experienced life according to his humanity. He experienced life as a man. We are aware when we speak of Jesus that certain attributes and experiences are true to one of his natures and not the other. For example, Jesus has all the attributes of God according to his <coughs> deity. He has all the attributes of God. Omniscience, he knows everything. Omnipotence, he is all powerful. Omnipresence, he is everywhere at once. Yet, while these apply to Jesus according to his deity, he did not make use of these things according to his humanity while he was here on earth. So Jesus could say, according to his humanity, I do not know the hour. I do not know. God knows all things. Jesus, according to his humanity, did not make use of that omniscience while he was here on earth. We also know that God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchanging. And thus God cannot experience fatigue, hunger, thirst. But Jesus experienced these things according to his humanity. We also know that on the cross of Calvary, Jesus died. But if you read a headline that says God is dead, don't believe it. God did not die. And, and there was never a rift or a tear or a separation in the Trinity. God did not die. The Trinity was never, uh, was never broken or out of commission. Jesus died truly according to his humanity. This God-man, we, we call that the hypostatic union. Now you've heard me say that because I've said it's easier to learn the term hypostatic union than it is to wrap your mind around what it is that Jesus is God and man in two unique, person, uh, unique natures and one person forever. We call this the hypostatic union. This Jesus, God and man, is the mediator between God and man. Do you see why that is so important? For Jesus to be the mediator between God and man, he must be God and man. He is the only redeemer of God's elect. He is the savior. He is the center of the gospel. And the gospel 
proclaims Jesus, testifies of Jesus. He had to be truly man. He had to be our brother in humanity so that he might be one of us, so that he might stand in our place and become our substitutionary sacrifice. He had to have his feet firmly planted on earth to be one of us, but he also had to be truly God. Perfect and holy of the same essence with the Father so that he might enter into the Holy of Holies and offer himself a sacrifice for sin. With his feet firmly planted on earth as a man, he also had to reach into heaven to God. He had to be God and man. The gospel we see in this text is spread by people. The gospel is no new doctrine. And we're seeing now that the gospel testifies of Jesus Christ. And another way the gospel testifies of Jesus Christ is in his resurrection. In verse four, we read, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is proof that Jesus is who he said. He is who he said he is. The resurrection is evidence that the sacrifice he offered for sin on Calvary as the Lamb of God was accepted and satisfied God's justice. The resurrection testifies of Jesus Christ. We need to hurry. Verse 5 says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Now these words grace and apostleship are connected in this text in such a way that we might understand Paul to be saying we have received the grace of apostleship or we have received the favor of apostleship. We've already said that he did not call himself to this work, that he did not take the mantle to himself. Jesus called him to it. But now he is telling us that this calling is wholly and completely by grace. There is nothing of worth in Paul to deserve the call of God that was upon him. The apostles of the gospel were called by the grace of God. The message of the gospel is grace. <clears throat> Through the life and death of Jesus. And all those who receive the gospel. All those who believe in Jesus Christ. Are saved wholly and completely by grace. Through the gift of faith. Paul was called. And it was grace. Verse 5 continues. To bring about the obedience of faith. Among the Gentiles for his name's sake. Obedience sometimes in our minds might, might conjure up thoughts of, of works and working. And when he says here the obedience of faith, he's not talking about works salvation. He is reminding us that there is an obedience. There is a command of the gospel. And here he reminds us that the minister who preaches the word, his duty is to preach and then it is the duty of the hearer to obey the command of the gospel to repent and believe in Jesus. The obedience of faith here is the command to repent and believe. 
Paul did his apostolic duty. He did his apostolic work for the gospel. And we have it before us in the letters that he wrote and here specifically in Romans. Paul obeyed Christ. Since the New Testament has been written, countless preachers have obeyed the command of their calling by preaching the gospel. And every hearer should know your duty. You must obey the command of the gospel. Believe in Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins. The text continues, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. You are the called. Now, as we read scripture, there are words that we might think we understand and we have to, we have to look at them and, and see what the scripture means by the use of those words. When we read here that you were the call, he's speaking to the saints as the call. And he's not just saying that they heard an outward call, but this is speaking of an inward call. This is speaking of an effectual call. That he might say in Romans chapter 8, those whom he called, he justified. This sort of calling is the type of calling that guarantees justification. It guarantees salvation. This is effectual calling. And Paul was called through the apostolic ministry to, 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 to minister the word. And you were called to believe the gospel. And to submit to the apostolic ministry that we have in the scriptures. The gospel is spread by people. The gospel is no new doctrine. The gospel testifies of Jesus Christ. And then finally we see the gospel is the cause of grace and peace for the elect. Verse 7, to all who are the beloved of God in Rome. To all who are the beloved of God in Rome. We see this. We see this grace of God. That he's called the saints. Beloved. We are loved. By God. We are the recipients. We are the objects of his love. Listen to what Calvin says of this verse when we are called the beloved, when the saints are called the beloved. He says this, Paul does by no means ascribe the praise of our salvation to ourselves, but derives it altogether from the fountain of God's free and paternal love toward us. For he makes this the first thing. God loves us. And what is the cause of his love? Except his own Goodness alone. We know that the love that God bestows on his people leads him to call us to Jesus Christ in salvation. The text said calls called as saints. And the effectual call of God is not for anything of worth, not for anything good found in the man, but only for the goodness of of God. 
Those who were the objects of God's predestining love, those he also called as saints. And then we have, when we are called as saints, we have grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is his unmerited favor, the unmerited favor of God. And out of that grace flows blessings from God, signified here as peace. So the gospel is spread by people. The gospel is no new doctrine. The gospel testifies of Jesus Christ and the gospel is cause of grace and peace to the elect. Even in the introduction to this letter, we find so much truth here. Gospel truth, which instructs and encourages every believer. We learn here that God has decreed the means of salvation to be brought through the preaching of the word by redeemed men. We find here the promise of the gospel in the Old Testament brought to fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We find here that Jesus, the God man, is the center of the gospel. And we find that the gospel is for all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. He points out here that his apostleship is to the Gentiles. We praise God for that. And we find here that we are objects of his love, recipients of his grace, and beneficiaries of his peace. God, we pray that you would bless your gospel to the saving of lost souls the sanctification of the saints. We pray that the Spirit would apply these truths to our heart. For your kingdom's sake we ask. Amen.